Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. The following recording is from our Sunday morning gathering. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. Good morning, everyone. If you have your Bible... I would encourage you to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. That is where we will be this morning. And to start, um, I'm just going to read the entire chapter, and then we'll move forward in small, hopefully digestible chunks. So I'm going to go ahead and read, starting in verse 1. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to the law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels how much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. It is so that, is it so that there are not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brothers go to law with brother and that before unbelievers. Actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the spirit of our God, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immortality, immorality, excuse me, but for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is of one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Verse 18 says, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God, for your word. Father, I pray that um, you would allow us the grace to receive from you this morning. Father, that it wouldn't be um, bias or, or some sort of uh, 
cultural expectation, God, but that we could hear from you because we love you, Lord. I think of the image of John 10, that the shepherd is the shepherd of the sheep, and the sheep know the shepherd by the sound of his voice. Lord, I pray that we would hear you this morning, and if we would hear you, that we wouldn't harden our hearts. We thank you, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, we are well into our series on 1 Corinthians, and if you've been along with us, it has not been without its share of contention and confrontation. And I want to assure you that this was not an accident. This was premeditated. We picked this book because it exists for teaching the church. Like many um, epistles and different things in the New Testament, they're not just things that we are supposed to like kind of ponder, but they're for our benefit and our growth and our teaching. And teaching doesn't just consist of immaterial knowledge. It doesn't just help fortify our minds, but it informs and makes demands of our entire integrated self. And what I mean by that is that it's been said before, and, and, I, and, I, and I, I labor to say it again, that um, what is required of us as followers of Jesus is not just to believe in Jesus. And, and hear me out, because you need to believe that Jesus is Lord. Um, in order to be saved, it's only by his grace and, and faith in that, in that grace. But there's greater implications to belief than just mental assent. Does anybody like Christmas movies? Does anybody not like Christmas movies? Okay. That's okay. I'm not a huge Christmas movie person either. You know Miracle on 34th Street? The, the old one, the older one. There's a scene at the very end where this little girl has made bombastic, bold requests of Santa Claus. Do you guys, I hope this isn't spoiling it for you. The movie came out a while ago. She wants her family to own property in New York City, and it just feels bold. It just feels wild. And so she's sitting there. She's met the incarnate, like, fleshly Santa Claus, and she's still struggling because her request has not been granted by this, this sort of demigod Santa Claus figure. And so she's sitting in the backseat of a car with her mom and, and her mom's boyfriend or whatever it is, and she says, I believe, I believe, it's silly, but I believe. And that haunts me, you guys, because that's the way so many of us treat Jesus, where it's like this belief doesn't actually mean anything, but I know I'm supposed to say that I believe and trust God. It's silly, but I believe. And I want to just attest to you this morning that that's not what we're called to. That's not what we're, we're tasked with as followers of Jesus. Um, I've used this illustration before, so if you've heard this from me, forgive the redundancy. But I, I like to use the illustration of a chair. Let's say I have this, this beautiful handmade chair. It's in my house. I really like it. And from time to time, I talk about it. So when, when the conversation steers towards this chair, I'm like, oh, you have a chair? I have a chair. I have the best chair. It's a beautiful chair. Comfortable chair, sturdy chair, great chair. People are like, wow, he really believes in that chair. But you come to my house, and you're like, oh, can I try that chair you were talking about? Oh, oh no. Don't, don't sit in the chair. Okay, I mean, I guess maybe it's really personal to you. Why don't you sit in the chair and tell me, oh, no, I, I don't, I've never sat in the chair. But I believe that it's a really great chair. You, in my home, could assume he doesn't actually believe in this chair. Or the way that he believes in this chair is really odd, that he won't actually do what the chair is for. He won't actually sit 
in the chair. And so to believe is not just to think good thoughts about the chair. To believe is to actually sit in the chair. To believe is inviting other people to your house like, you have to sit in my chair. You have to come see it. You have to come experience the chair. Because it's not just a matter of, I think good thoughts about this chair. It's actually the matter of doing what is, what is the thing that I claim to believe. So I'm not saying that you're saved by works, but what I do believe is that the grace of God transforms a human life. We should be confident in the Lord's ability to lead us in his way. And we can shape this silly chair metaphor in other ways. If you say you love your spouse, but yet you never spend any time with them or show them any affection whatsoever, other people, including your spouse, can say, you don't actually love me. And that sounds so harsh and so severe, but when we realize that if we say we believe in God, then we need to practice what that implies. So all the while, um, Paul has been, been teaching through this letter and other such like didactic works in the New Testament, is it, and the focus continues on to... I started that sentence really weird. Let me try again. The focus singles in on what it actually looks like to follow Jesus. Because I think a lot of us have plenty of inspirational quotes about following Jesus, but I think all of us need help with actually getting the thing going, to actually start the engine, to actually get on the road and actually follow Jesus, not just talk about following Jesus, not just think fondly about following Jesus, but that we would actually follow Jesus. And all the while in 1 Corinthians, we're getting these continual themes of disunity. We're getting themes of factions, immaturity, and outright sin. And Paul peppers in these specific examples. And we've said this a couple times, but I want to I make it clear for all of us that there are specific examples in this book that maybe we don't relate to word for word. And that doesn't invalidate the word of God. Because last week we talked about somebody in the church that was sleeping with their stepmother. And it's easy for you to think about that and be like, wow, that has nothing to do with me, praise God. But the, the principle in this is actually very relevant. And even though Paul is responding to specific things to this community, I think if we would allow ourselves a little bit of tenderness, if we would allow ourselves a little bit of softness, we would see that he is speaking to us as well. So this morning, we're going to start with another specific response. And there's something going on in the church in Corinth that Paul is addressing, but I think it does still ring true with us. So if you would open your Bible, if you would have it open, it will be on the screen. We're going to start in verse 1. I'm going to read it again. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to the law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, you are not are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels how much more the matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with the matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges or who are no who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there are not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. Actually, then, it is already a defeat to you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? 
Verse 8 says, On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. So to, to summarize what's going on here, I, I realize I tend to favor a translation that doesn't get like super specific with words. It just gives a very general definition. So we are going to kind of get a little bit uh, deeper in our description. What's going on here is that there are people within the church that are dragging one another into public court. Nate talked a couple weeks ago what, what the courts looked like in the Roman Empire and specifically in Corinth, that there was a judgment seat in the middle of town. And so not only was it like trying to resolve things with justice, but it was kind of a show. It was kind of Judge Judy-ish, if you will. And people in the church are dragging one another because of disputes or, or defrauding or, or anything like that. And Paul is saying, this is horribly inappropriate, what you are doing. He points out a couple different reasons why this is not the way to go. And he, he points out one reason is that the judges who are judging in the city squares, the judges who are judging in the public courts are not just. He says, how could they be? They haven't been justified by the Lord. They don't know what justice actually is. And I'm sure there's plenty of cultural commentary that he's drawing from on the subject, but he's like, you're not going to get a just verdict from these judges. And Paul cast this vision of the future, and this is something that I'm so glad that we have now have a question and answer life group starting because Paul says a lot of things. He says, don't you know you're going to judge the world? Don't you know you're going to judge angels? Is there seriously not one person in your church that can settle disputes between brothers? So he paints this vision of the future where he believes so strongly that Jesus will come and judge all of creation and those who belong to him, those who are truly his, will be right there with him. And if you look at the last few chapters of, Cor of Corinthians, you're thinking, not these guys. I mean, maybe we will be there. But these jokers, they, they don't have any business judging anybody. They're immoral. They're wrong. But Paul says, no, you need to look to the future. This is your destiny. Your destiny is to be judges. Your destiny is to stand with the Lord when he delivers justice on the earth. Even though you don't resemble that in the least bit right now, this is where we're headed. And this further cements the point that Paul isn't just beating up some random strangers. These are people who are beloved of God. These are people who are followers of Jesus. Despite their sin, despite their shortcomings, they are considered his people. And the church isn't just a support group. It's not just a social club for those who ha share some budding interest in Jesus or religious things. The church is meant to, by Jesus Christ, to be an alternative to what the world is like. We're an alternative entire society and family to show the human race what it actually means to be human. What it actually means to be the way God created us to be. So I think in this situation that we're dealing with in Corinth, and if we would allow ourselves to, to stretch just a little bit, I think in our situation as well, Paul is really pointing out four things. I sat in my living room with, with Nate and our friend Daniel, who uh, was here last week. We talked about what is going on in this first section. And we really pointed out four different things that Paul is taking, taking conflict with. Number one is the public display of disputes. Doing this, if, if we could allow our imaginations to open, doing this slanders the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we claim that the gospel of Jesus Christ reconciles us to God who has the most credit against us. But yet when we are defrauded or wronged, we have to drag and slander our brothers and sisters. 
So he's saying you are making a mockery in front of unbelievers, of not just each other, but of the church and of the gospel itself. You are not reflecting who Jesus is when you do these sort of things. And when we're talking about public courts and unjust judges, there's many of us who would sit here and be like, oh, this has nothing to do with me. I've never done anything like that. But I think we have experienced in our church, we have experienced in the church, factions. We've experienced broken relationships. We've experienced discriminations that we have just tolerated. So rather than seeking reconciliation with one another, rather than confessing sin to one another, rather than calling each other to account, we're rather rant on Facebook. I don't know. Not you guys. Other people probably. But how many of you have witnessed the vitriol of an online debate between followers of Jesus? That even the winner does not bring more glory to Christ, but more glory to their own self and their intellect. How many of you have been a part of a church that somebody has gotten offended, and rather than seeking resolution, they just go down the road? This is very much our issue. This is very much, I'm not trying to shame you. Paul directly said that. I'm trying to shame you. But what, what I want us to do is to consider how much of this can exist in our own hearts. The second thing that Paul points out is that people aren't seeking justice or re resolution within the body of Christ. He says there should be, there should be wise people in the church. And, and even the prescription of the New Testament is if you don't have wisdom, you need to ask God for wisdom. There are problems that will come up in the church that I don't have the answer for. But I can't just say like, that sucks. I guess you'll just be offended and, and be alone. No. We have to ask for wisdom. We have to seek wisdom. We have to seek counsel. And, and so many times we're looking for methods and mediators outside of the body of Christ to try and solve our problems for us. The third thing, and this is a hard thing, but it's a Jesus thing is that Paul is taking conflict with people not relenting and just admitting to be wrong. Or beyond being wrong, people aren't letting themselves be wronged. Can you imagine this scenario where I'm offended by something somebody else does, and I tell them that I'm offended? I'm not trying to hide or, or bottle things up or conceal, don't feel, you know? Like, that's not what we're trying to do but I would just forgive a person and let myself be wronged. I don't get some sort of vengeance. I don't like make them feel bad in front of everybody else, but I just rather be defrauded and I let it go. This kind of radical attitude is a witness to the world around us. They're like, wow, they really do believe that you can be made right. They really do believe that the, the, the propitiation of another can make them right. And I, I want to be clear, this isn't an excuse to tolerate abuse. So this isn't like I'm saying all these things to you so that way on Monday I can make you all, I can beat you all up and then you have to forgive me. We need justice. We need to be formed to be more like Jesus. That's the entire goal of this book. That's the entire goal of following Jesus is to be like him for the sake of his glory. But we cannot just keep fighting. We cannot just break into smaller and smaller, smaller little factions to just surround yourself with people that you think will not hurt you. If there's another person present, there is a 100% chance that you can get hurt. 
But this is the thing of life. This is family. The fourth thing, and I think probably the greatest thing, is that these offenses and disputes exist in the first place. That there are so many things that we can avoid by actually just looking at each other as an image bearer of God, looking at each other as a child of God who has been redeemed by grace. And there are things that we don't even have to fight about. And I realize that that feels kind of immaterial and hard to, to settle down to, but I don't know how capable I am to get it like real, real darn specific <laughs> um, without just like... So I was thinking about you guys, and I, and I think I found the issues that we can point out, and so I'm just going to call them out right now. Um, I think there's an opportunity for us all, by God's word, by his grace, to overcome stumbling blocks, to overcome petty offenses, where otherwise we've just started grinding axes. And it's not to say that lawsuits are bad, but much of this infighting can be prevented by the love of God and the grace of Jesus. The Lord wants to heal divisions in the church, and I really believe that. And I think, uh, maybe I should have said this first, but I'm not a big confrontation guy. I'm not the kind of person that's like, oh, I didn't like that. I'm gonna go talk to them about it. It's like, no, I'm probably wrong, it's fine, I'll just let it go. You know, I'll just bottle it up and I'll, I'll talk to my therapist about it <laughs> six years from now or something. Um, I'm not a big confrontation guy. I, I, I don't want you to feel like, wow, Adam's got this handled. He's got the perfect method for this. It's like, no, this is complicated. But it's not impossible. And it's something that I believe the Lord has given us an opportunity to practice forgiveness, to practice grace um, for the sake of the Lord. And that is the motivation. You know, that is the motivation is for the sake of the Lord's glory, that we are not just representing ourselves. We're not just representing this church or whatever. We're representing Jesus. So as we go on, um, the underlying issue within the lawsuits is these unrighteous attitudes. And I use the word unrighteous very purposefully because that's the word Paul uses. Can you imagine when we're talking about these disputes and divisions and conflicts that it's not just crowd, uh, chalked up to immaturity? Like we, re we read about immaturity a couple weeks ago, but he's saying it is not just immaturity. It is unrighteous. It is sinful to think this way. And look at the way Paul goes into this. We'll start with verse 9. And do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? What a severe statement. He's like, this issue isn't just like for your church polity and how you will govern yourselves and, 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 and if you can sit with a certain person or if you can go to church if this other person is here. No, this is a, the sake of the kingdom of God. He's saying you will not inherit the kingdom of God with these unrighteous attitudes. And look where he groups this in with, do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul is saying those who are wrongly seeking justice and holding petty disputes against one another are just as unrighteous as these other ones. To some of you, this probably sounds shocking. To others, you may be relieved that your particular pet sin was not listed here. It's like, oh, thank God I'm only prideful, you know? I'm not a reviler, whatever that means. But I assure you, that's not the point. The point isn't like, here's the final list of sins that are unrighteous, that don't inherit the kingdom of God. No, he's, he's, 
he's obviously, obvious to me, he's obviously drawing on um, reports that have been given to him about the church, that these kinds of things are happening. And he's, he's saying, like, not only is this lawsuit thing a cancer on the body of Christ, but it is as cancerous as these other things that we all know by the way of Jesus are wrong. And this is, this is the difference of life and death. This is the difference of eternity. To inherit the kingdom of God is to say, to be saved, to be justified by Jesus on the cross. This is accomplished by faith and the grace and the saving work of Jesus. But I don't want us to be confused. It's not just a one-time event and then you're done. Jesus died once for all, but our lives consist with that response. How am I going to live in light of what Jesus has done? To walk in a manner worthy of the calling which we've been called. I was thinking about it this week, and I was thinking of an illustration. It's like you give your two weeks at a job. You finish out the project you're working on. You do your exit paperwork, your exit interview. You're done. You have a new job lined up. You filled out all your forms. You turned them into HR. On Monday morning, you show up to your old job. Everyone's confused. Now, this is a fireable offense to your new job when you just don't call, you don't show up. And then your previous boss is confused. Why are you here? You don't belong here anymore. And what Paul is attesting to the church is like, you're, you're trying to belong somewhere that you've been brought away from. You're trying to belong somewhere where you no longer belong. You have a new life. You have a new creation. You're, you're headed somewhere else but you're acting like you're still working at the old job, even though all the work has been done. Now, we can read verses like this, and they can grate on our cultural sensibilities. And to a certain extent, they ought to. And I want to offer you some sort of confidence that that wasn't foreign to Paul either. It's not as if our world has somehow gotten so enlightened that these things were fine then, but they're, they're bad now. They were bad then. They were countercultural then. They were contentious then. But Paul is saying them, for the sake of those who want to follow Jesus, you cannot allow these things in your life. We find comfort in verse 11. I love the, the verb tense agreement in this verse. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Not by your efforts, not by cleaning up your life, but in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. Hallelujah. Just because that's what you've done doesn't mean that's what you have to do. Just because that's where your story was going doesn't mean that's where you're headed. You have been given another chance. You've been redeemed. You've been bought back for the sake of Jesus. And I would, I would venture to say, and Paul isn't necessarily saying this here, but I think to an extent it's, it's implied within it. If you're tempted in this today, that does not mean you're bound to it. Jesus, perfect, sinful, incarnate God, sinless, excuse me, Jesus, perfect, sinless, incarnate God, was tempted to sin but did not sin. Temptation is not sin. So if you're like, I have, 
a temper. I'm so angry and I'm so frustrated. I know it's not of God. The Lord is saying, you're not bound by that. You've actually been free. Does that make sense? God has washed you and is still washing you. And we practice this righteous walk together as those who have been right, not by our own effort, but by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. But this is hard. The effort involved in this is hard. And to many, if you've spent uh, uh, enough time in Western church, the word effort feels very negative. It's like, you're talking about striving, brother. Yeah, I think I am. But I believe that the Lord has something for us. I believe the Lord has an inheritance for us and a way for us to walk in that requires your effort. Like I said before, lawsuits and all the rank sin are symptoms of an issue that underlines the entire letter. That is, what is a Christian supposed to look like? How is a Christian supposed to live? And so to state his case, Paul uses a couple of common phrases from the vernacular of the people um, and offers swift rebuttal. So let's look at the first phrase. The first phrase that existed in their culture is, all things are lawful for me. Look at that in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Now, this phrase, all things are lawful, isn't totally untrue. Because as a follower of Jesus, we have been set free. Now, we're not bound by the law of Moses. We're not bound by these sort of things. But Paul responds with a critical consideration to this sort of phrase. That maybe I am free to do whatever I want, but that is not mean that anything I want is good. When you think about benefit or profit, there's a huge discrimination on what we do. I like the way N.T. Wright says this in his commentary. I think I have the quote on the screen, if you've got it for me. It says, in particular, precisely because Christianity means freedom, it's important that nothing is allowed to give me orders. Not my appetites, not my habits, not the surrounding atmosphere of my culture with its hardly noticed pressures towards certain styles of life. Paul shifts the responsibility back to the individual Christian to think through and work out what is actually helpful and what practices and habits will gain the mastery over them if they aren't careful. The point here is that Jesus Christ is the master of your life. And he does not share that space with anyone else. And honestly, when we are baptized, that's what we're proclaiming. Jesus Christ is my master. When we take communion, that's what we proclaim. That Jesus Christ, what he did, he is the master of my life. He is the king and the Lord over everything. When we pray, when we sing, that is the, the purpose. That is the reason. That is framing and girding everything that we do that Jesus Christ is in charge. Beyond that, the things that we leave undone are also a testament to Jesus Christ being Lord. Not least the impulses of my flesh and the desires of my imagination, where before I had no hope. I couldn't resist these things. I had no reason to. But now, through Christ... We've been set free. Jesus will not share the space of mastery with anything or anyone else. And he elaborates the point as we go on. Let's look at the second phrase. 
It's given way to wrong thinking in the minds of the Corinthians. The Corinthians would say, food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. Look at this in verse 13. But God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now, if you just isolate this phrase, it sounds remarkably modern, doesn't it? Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. Why did God make it if he didn't want me to partake in it? People have tolerated poison because it's natural, because it seems normal, because it's grown customary in the world around them. And Paul's saying, no. Your body has a reason. I made it a certain way for a certain reason. Do you know what that reason is? It's for him. The body is for the Lord. It's not for food. It's not for your desires. It's not for your impulses. It's not for any of those things. It belongs to the Lord. As we continue reading, Paul centers in on sexual immorality, which we neatly defined last week, and I really like it, so I'm going to go with it. We neatly define sexual immorality as any sort of sexual release outside of the covenant marriage between one man and one woman. And I think this is difficult in our time and era and these kinds of things, but the reality is that the Lord is showing us a better way. He is forgiving us. He is washing us. He is showing us a better way. Your body is not for self-expression or personal identity. And to all the Westerners in the room, myself included, it's like, uh, what? Your body and all of its faculties are for the Lord. Everything in the universe exists for him, not least your own body. Look at Colossians 1. People say, and I really like it, so I hope it's true, that this is the first song that was ever written for the church. Verse 13 starts with, He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He, he being Jesus, the Lord is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have the first place in everything. That is to say that this call to being under the lordship and the mastery of Jesus is not a, uh, a low, fruitless call. This is a very worthy call. I've used this example before, and it's really rough. So if you don't like this one, it's fine. I had a, a, a missionary guy that I was listening to, and uh, he works with college-age students, sending them on missionary journeys and whatever. And he's like, you know what I found is one of the most difficult hindrances to the gospel going forth in the nations? Christian parents. That if their son or daughter wanted to join the armed forces of the United States, they would applaud them and laud them for the honor to serve their country. But when they want to serve their king, they oppose them. Let's think about it. Let's pray. Are you sure? 
because Jesus isn't the Lord. Jesus isn't the king. When he's asking you not to do something, I don't know, did he really mean that? When he's asking you to do something, I'm going to have to pray about that. From here, Paul forms a theology of the body, starting with the best place to start, that is the resurrection of Jesus. Let's look at verse 14. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Now this is sick. I genuinely love this. Because what he is saying is that Jesus didn't just raise in spirit. And maybe some of you are like, why are you saying this? This is a pervading belief in the church in America, and really the West period, is that they think of Jesus as some sort of incorporeal spirit. But his body rose from the dead. Not his soul, not his spirit. That's Plato. Smart guy, had things to say, he was wrong. We've discovered that. Jesus himself raised from the dead, and Paul is saying, that's not just him, he's the firstborn of the dead. You know what that implies? You're coming too. Death is not the end. There is life after, life after death. I want to quote uh, N.T. Wright one more time before I have to start paying him royalties. He says this in his commentary on this passage, God raised Jesus the Lord and will raise us too. So that what you do with your body matters. The resurrection of the body remains a mystery. We don't have the language to do justice to what it will finally mean. But it certainly means that there will be some sort of continuity between the present body and the future one. What you do with the present body will have consequences, not just arbitrary rewards or punishments in the life to come. And he said before, the reason we have bodies is for the Lord. And we have been confused by this because there has been philosophy that has crept into the church that makes it feel a little bit better to sin. Because if we think that our souls are saved and our souls are someday going to heaven, then what we do with our bodies doesn't matter. But let me posit that the Bible says our bodies are going to be with the Lord. Our bodies are going to be in the new Jerusalem with Jesus the King. And so what you do with this, with this vessel you've been given has great stakes for the future. Look at this in th- verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Now, we use the word member. We actually, at our church, don't use the word member. We use the word partner for Confusion's sake, we don't want to make it think like if you don't fill out a pledge card, then you don't belong to Jesus. You still are a member of the body of Christ if you don't fill out a pledge card. But uh, we, you're partnering with this particular local fellowship. That's why we do it that way. But Paul uses the word member, and we kind of take that for granted because it just sounds like, oh, that's somebody who's accepted terms and agreements and, and is inducted into an organization. But if you would uh, expand your mind for a moment, this is the way that he's using this is actually meaning like body members, like your fingers and your hands and your arms and things like that. He's actually saying you're a part of Christ. You're not just uh, in the club. You're a part of him. So when he's using this image, can you be ripped off of Christ and joined to another? That doesn't make any sense. That's disgusting. And it makes the image so severe because we're so integrated with Jesus, but yet we, be- we behave as if we're belonging to another. 
to say plainly, if you join yourself to immorality, you will yourself to be separate from Jesus. And we like to think of this as cruel. I know last week was harsh. If you weren't here last week, you should definitely listen to the message. But it is the word of God, and we did pick it on purpose. <laughs> but if you just contend with this image a little bit further, this members joining to another, this sort of thing. If you were... To, to the Corinthian church, the, the image of a prostitute is not just a shocking image, but the application of prostitution was ingrained into their culture. This was something that was related to the idolatry and entertainment of the day. There were temple prostitutes. Even the word um, in my Bible that says effeminate earlier, those who don't inherit the kingdom of God, is actually male prostitutes. Um, we've understood that by uh, like their, these sort of cult prostitutes in, in temples and stuff like that. And so it wasn't something that was foreign to them. It wasn't something that was like, oh, why would you say that in church? That's so shocking. Why would you say that? But to take that image a little bit further, if you were to um, make patron of a prostitute, can you imagine the violence that that would do to your marriage covenant? That's, I mean, that's, uh, I mean, I can't, e I can't even imagine the violence that that would do. But yet we behave like this with Jesus and just think, oh, it's fine. He's bigger than that, I think. He is, and he will forgive you. But this solemn warning from the Apostle Paul is like, don't let that into your life. And this isn't a new image. If you're familiar, if you've spent some time in the Bible, you know that this image of a prostitute or a harlot is like widely used in the Old Testament and beyond um, to appeal to idolatry adultery, but also the unwieldy uh, sexual appetite of the people of God. And I think of this sense that there genuinely is a sense, and, and we sang a song about that this morning, where we can't be separated from God. We can't be separated from Christ. Look at this, the way Paul wrote to the church in Rome, in Romans 8. He says this in verse 38, For I am convinced... That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any, created, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what does this do in relationship to what we just read? That you, you separate yourself from God, but you cannot be separated from God. And the way that I look at this is that nothing outside of yourself is forcing you to leave Jesus. No one can force you to do this. I go through this with my kids all the time. I went through this with all of just this morning where she did something that I have explicitly told her not to do ever before. Like multiple times I told her not to do this and she was doing it. And then she says, Simi made me do it. And I was like, no, he didn't. Simi cannot force you to sin against your father. You wanted to do it and you did it. And that sounds so silly when I put it on my, my adorable little angel of a daughter. But this is the attitude that we carry into the throne of grace all the time. It's just so tempting. How am I, how am I supposed to deal with this life? How am I supposed to deal with this? Paul has a prescription. Do you guys remember in Genesis where um, the Lord corrects Cain? 
He's asking him about his brother who he just murdered in cold blood. And he, he uses this imagery that I think about all the time where he says, sin is crouching at your door. He makes it, he personifies sin as like this beast that's waiting to get you. Sin is like this, this monster lurking in the shadows ready to devour you. This watchful dragon that wants to kill you. And Paul has a prescription for dealing with this. In verse 18, he says, flee. Flee immorality. And here he is specifically, again, honing in on sexual immorality. He says, every other sin that a man commits is outside of the body. But the immoral man, the sexually immoral man, sins against his own body. Don't stand and fight. Run away. Because what you've proven to the Lord is you can't do it. I can't do it. We can't do it. Run away. Devote yourself to the Lord. As we continue to the close of this chapter, we find a great metaphor that Paul has already applied earlier in the letter for the entire church, and he applies it to the individual. If you look at verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Now these two verses powerfully illustrate this, this concept of, of the temple and the cross. Because the cross represents the price that was paid for us. That it wasn't like Jesus just like, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll fudge the records this time, but you do better from now on. No, he paid the price with his own mortal life. The sacrificial death of Jesus is our motivation. The only righteous one taking the unrighteous punishment and shame on himself so that we could stand before our maker and judge justified. From this place, we're not found as just like blank slates, like, oh, I don't know what to do now. No, we're found as the temple of the Holy Spirit. And this image meant so much, not just to the Jewish people of the day, but also to the Gentile sensibilities, because the temple wasn't just like what we consider this church. This church is a sacred space because we come here to worship. But if this building burned down, bummer. The temple was sacred because the, the theology associated with the temple is that this isn't just a nice place where we go to do God stuff. God lives here. That there, is, there are places in this place that God is there, not just in the face that, oh, God's always there. God's always with us. No, he's there in a fearful and terrible way. And he's like, this is the reality of your life right now. And no matter how much you want to pretend, he's not going anywhere. He's with you right now. If you think about the temple, there are people who snore through entire areas of the Old Testament because it's going into excruciating details in the schematics of the tent of meeting and the temple down to the vessels that they use for the certain rituals and ceremonies. And it's like, why is this here? Because the temple is not a multi-use facility. It's not for God on Sundays from 10 to 12, and then for basketball and any other weird hobbies that we have or anything like that. It's not for God from 10 to 12 on Sundays, and then for whatever lusts your heart can, con can contribute every other day. No, your, your body, and I love the spe specificity, it's not just you. No, he's saying your body, your physical faculties 
are for the Lord, and the Holy Spirit lives there. And if you relate this to the temple of God, this is not shared space. This is not multi-use facilities. This is for the Lord. It's not just a nostalgic sacred spot, but it is for the glorious presence of the almighty, unapproachable God. It's where he is especially present. It was holy and fearful and reverent. We exist for the Lord. And and I love that the close of this chapter says, therefore glorify the Lord with your body. Because there's a lot of instruction here. There's a lot of, hey, but what about? And and I get that. You know, I don't think anybody's ever going to preach a sermon that is just like, I've answered all the questions. And there's no room for interpretation. But I think if we would let this, let this actually get past the threshold and let this actually resonate with us for a moment, I believe that the Lord will move mightily in our lives to realize the things that are um, contesting for his lordship, the things that are trying to usurp his throne. And last week we talked about the destruction of the flesh. We talked about disfellowship. And I know that is hard. But it's actually the grace of God. And it's actually a beautiful thing. But I wanted to offer the caveat that this is not disfellowship and putting someone out is not for those who are fighting. The context of chapter 5 was those who have given their full, hearty like, uh, approval to their sin. Like, this isn't sin. This is good. I like this. I'm just going to keep doing it. That's what Paul is talking about in chapter 5. In chapter 6, he's saying, for those of you who are fighting, for those of you who have been washed but are acting like you're, you're still in, in the stalls with the pigs, flee immorality. Glorify God with your body. Because God isn't just saving your soul. He's saving you. Um. My, my final encouragement is that you're not alone, you know? This is the practice of the church, is that we're in this together. And I think we use imagery, imagery like members and family and all this sort of stuff, which feels really good from here to here where you guys are, aren't, like, interrupting and asking questions and things like that. I get that, you know? But I want you to understand that if you're fighting, we want to fight with you. And I hope that as I'm fighting, that you would fight with me, you know? That we could go about this together and realize that there is something on the other side of my addiction and my iniquity. There's something on the other side of my natural tendency that Jesus has where he is the Lord and he's being glorified. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to find more of our messages, get connected with our church, or partner with us financially, you can find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Thanks again, and have a blessed week.